soldiers, all shot in the head as they slept in their cabs. It was the summer of 1953, the summer of the Turnpike Phantom, the killer who spread fear among truckers in the U.S. From Freight Waves, this is Long Haul Crime Log, a true crime podcast about the dark side of freight. I'm Nate Tabak in Toronto, Canada. I'm Clarissa Hawes in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm Noy Mahoney in San Antonio, Texas, and we're reporters with Freight Waves. We'll tell you more about the Turnpike Phantom later in the show, as well as more recent unsolved killings of truckers. But it's the second week of 2021. The year is already off to a crazy start. Got the whole storming of the Capitol last week. COVID cases are skyrocketing, but meanwhile, freight continues to move. And there is plenty of crime to talk about. Clarissa, I know that you've been following this story involving a trucker who was actually shot by police last week. Investigators say that Taylan Rahim of Kansas City showed up at their headquarters in in Lee Summit, Missouri, with an assault-style rifle, and that he fired a shot at the building um, and in and he was in his own like personal vehicle at the time, but that they're only and he was later shot by troopers and is is still in the hospital. Um, the sergeant that's heading the investigation said that the only tie in with that troop is that Rahim um, was cited by their agency in October of 2019 for and received an overweight ticket while driving for swift transportation. So Clarissa, what, when a driver gets an overweight ticket, like, um, is that a, is that a big deal? It can be, depending on how many you've received and, and you know, as far as your license and everything. But it, it appears that he's had no prior run-ins with the law. And um, I reached out to Swift Transportation just to confirm whether he was currently employed, um, because the ticket is, is more than a year old. So we really still don't have all of the information as to why he drove to their headquarters that night. And is there anything about, you know, his condition or what the, you know, is he expected to survive? He is in stable condition at a Kansas City hospital. And, but the investigator said he wouldn't confirm how many times Mr. Rahim was shot and or any other details about the case. So there's still a lot of unknowns other than um, he allegedly fired shots at the, the, their headquarters. Well, that's, that's, it sounds like it'll be very interesting to, to find out if, if it ever emerges, uh, why this happened, you know, this, uh, this overweight ticket, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would lead someone to want to allegedly go to a police station uh, with a gun, but it, these are strange times, I suppose. And the ticket was only for $130 for a lot of truck drivers. They are used to, you know, have been fined some pretty significant, um, you know, amounts over the years. And so I this one didn't seem, you know, very pricey compared to others. So speaking of crazy things happening uh, as we start 2021, Noy, you uh, you wrote this this kind of interesting story about a some rail sabotage happening in Mexico. Like what 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 happened there? 
Yeah, Nate, it was a very uh, brazen train robbery that occurred in Mexico about two weeks ago. It actually happened on New Year's Eve, and it was down near the city of Puebla, which is central Mexico, and a train carrying about 165 fully assembled Volkswagen cars uh, was sabotaged by armed thieves uh, near a small town called Zingo. And this is a very remote area of Mexico. And what happened was the train derailed. Uh, apparently, cars even fell out of some of the, you know, uh, the train. And they were just sort of scattered everywhere. And it's it's not clear from the uh, local reports if cars were stolen or if they were, you know, disassembled and parts were stolen. But apparently, the uh, the damage and cost to Volkswagen is in the millions and uh, this is not unusual, you know, train robberies, but it's unusual that they would go after a train with this many cars. And the train was headed to the port of Veracruz, which is on the uh, Atlantic coast. And these cars were going to be exported to Europe for sale. No, that's pretty crazy. Like, I, I didn't know that there were, like, still... St- Still these kind of like trade robberies. It sounds like, you know, something out of uh, like the Wild West or something. It's actually very, it's actually very common in Mexico, train robberies. If uh, next time I'm on a train in Mexico, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Well, it's it's, most, it's mostly freight trains, not not passenger trains. But you, so you're, you'll be okay if you're down in Mexico traveling on the train. So I don't, I gotta just, but I, I can't be like hitching a ride on a freight train in Mexico as then then you might be in trouble, yeah. <laughs> I guess there goes my summer vacation plans. So, spe- so speaking of the rails, I, I we sometimes forget about the railroads because they're like just they're there and but they're obviously they're vitally important to uh national supply chains. Another rail crime story for you, and this time it involves cyber criminals. So Omnitrax, which is a uh it's a short line rail provider which means they own they own a bunch of these little railroads that provide links from shippers to the big rail lines and so there, we don't know a, a huge amount of what happened here but we do know that they were targeted by one of these uh one of these ransomware gangs that breached the systems of its parent company the Broy group and it affected Omnitrax, and we don't know if there were any operational issues, but a lot of data was stolen and posted to the dark web, including uh, stuff about employees. And so, yeah, oh, another one of these cases, they keep on happening, and um, yeah, alarming stuff. So cybercrime is a relatively new issue, at least in human history. Uh, companies have been dealing with this for, you know, really the past 20 years or so, actually maybe even a bit longer Really, freight crime is something that has a long, a long history. And at the top of the show, I was talking about the Turnpike Phantom. He killed two truck drivers uh, as they slept just off the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike and shot another in the head just over the border in Ohio. And one of the things about this case that is that is fascinating is that, you know, we kind of live in this age where. We have mass shootings, things like that. And this this isn't, you know, this, this isn't one of those cases involving, you know, dozens of victims or some serial killer who's been going around for years. This is a guy who, that this criminal who, you know, shot three people, 
but this actually captivated the the country at the time and you had stories you know front you know these the banner headlines on newspapers about these crimes and some truck drivers were absolutely frightened about this because they had just been able to like you know just when they needed to rest they'd pull over and sleep and not worry about anything and then all of a sudden this guy just starts coming along and he does does these three days apart goes up to these truck drivers shoots them in the head robs them and then disappears uh clarissa this uh, this is like one of the these kind of stories that's kind of almost in the like you know that i think is in sort of the industry lore i don't know if you call it lore because it you know really happened but this is something that people people kind of know about right yes and and it you know even the teamsters offered a significant reward at the time you know five thousand dollars to catch this phantom the turnpike phantom and you know truckers armed themselves and the teamsters um had armed patrols out looking for this the man that was shooting truckers in their cabs while they slept he was eventually caught and his name was uh john wesley wable a 25 year old guy and he had been court-martialed in the army kind of just a spotty employment record but the thing about him is he may not have been quite as much of a phantom as as it was maybe presented because the thing is that during dur- there was this big net nationwide manhunt for, you know, for this like anonymous, uh, you know, murderer. And as it turns out during this, you have the Wable who's actually arrested because he's suspected he's arrested because he hadn't like uh, returned his rental car. And, while he was locked up in jail, he was apparently bragging that he was the Turnpike Phantom. <laughs> and, and, and it's it's kind of nuts, right? Like, and so, and, but he gets released because no one no one believed him. And this eventually, there he's uh, linked to the crime. I think there was some f- forensics involved, like ballistics of the time. Eventually, this guy, he gets arrested, gets arrested in New Mexico, and he's eventually tried and executed. And this thing is put to bed. But it was like, it was a really, it was a really big deal at the time. But this is, you know, it kind of, it it is sort of a reminder, I think, though, that, that for truck drivers out there that the, you know, this is, this is one of, I think, these many very sort of chilling stories about how vulnerable you are. Uh, in your tractor trailer, especially um, when you need to to rest at night, and I know Clarissa, there's there's one case in particular that I you know we've we've talked about this a number of times. One of one of these cases of uh, a truck driver uh, you know killed in his cab that is it sort of has stuck with you. Yes, um, the case of Michael Baglin, who he was an Indiana truck driver who was. Um, had a load of steel coils and was parked outside the Tyson Krupp steel plant in Detroit in on June 26, 2014. He had um, he, the the night before he had arrived and and called his wife Ashley and said, "Hey, I'm here. I'm going to park outside the plant doors and I'm going to want to be first in line so that I can unlo- unload." 
and then head back home to Ferdinand, Indiana, where he was going going to help a buddy load um, haul a load of pigs. And then, but yet, that was the last call he'd ever make to his wife. And a few hours later, he um, Ashley was notified that Michael um, that actually um, Michael's brother reached out to Ashley and asked if she had Michael's dental records because um, the police needed them. And so she was still asleep and asking, what do you mean? What's going on? And that they needed to, to confirm that Michael was in his cab because his truck was on fire. And um, they later found out that he was in fact in his cab and had been shot multiple times. And then his rig set on fire. Wow. Yeah, that's chilling. Did police like figure out like you know who did this? Were there any suspects? Like what what ended up happening? There's been no arrests in this case, so it's been almost seven years, and it's one of those cases that always haunts. I'm sure I know it haunts the family, but me as well, because you know every year, you know I reach out to the Detroit police to you know just you know find out if any leads or there's a cold case investigation, how you see on other news stations or, you know, when you watch where they've opened these cold case files into in cases, but yet there's been nothing, nothing. There's been no arrests. There's been no leads in this case and it's gone cold. And so Ashley, you know, has reached out several times to law enforcement, but there has received no answers other than The motive at the time was robbery. However, Michael's wallet, which was recovered in, in, you know, in his burnout cab, he had $800 in his wallet. And the only items that were taken from his cab was, was a flip phone that he used at the time and the, the, the couple's iPad. And she still keeps the, um, the data active in case somebody does activate it and she is able to, or comes online and she's able to see who it is, but, but yet nothing since, you know, 2000, the summer of 2014. It's just, I mean, just, just from like, you know, hearing the kind of the, the basic kind of facts of this, it just, it's, it seems really strange that someone would go to the, you know, the trouble of, destroying the like destroying the crime scene and, and all that but wouldn't you know make an effort to sort of you know s- steal more things and it just doesn't it feels like they're just some things in this case that really don't add up yes and and at the time i know i talked at the two officers investigating officers at the time who said this is kind of the mo for for parts of the city where they it was typically burned out vehicles like passenger vehicles that you know to you know to erase all evidence but but and motive was usually um the the you know like robbery was the mo at the time but um but yet again a lot of those cases also have gone unsolved over the years and I think a lot, it's one of those crimes where you, I think you, you know, when you were, at least when I, I, you know, reported on, uh, you know, other cases before where it's like, you look at all the, the little bits and pieces that you, 
you do have, and you never quite, you seldom have the, the whole picture that say like law enforcement sees, and you're trying to think like, well, what are all the possibilities here? And this is just one of those where you sort of put the, the, the logical explanation of, of these things and it, nothing quite, you know, adds up here. I think the one of the parts that haunts Ashley the most is that she, that Michael wasn't able to see their firstborn child who was born a few months after um, his death. So, you know, the, the night before um, he was killed, they had been talking about names. They were having a girl and, you know, we're talking about baby names and, you know, their future and, and what it looked like. And, and then to receive that phone call, you know, five hours later that he was gone and, you know, wasn't going, you know, like that she had envisioned this life for them. And, and it and it wasn't going to happen, I think was devastating for her. I would I would think that also just not having any having answers about that is probably keeps that makes that all the all the harder, you know, these years on. Why for you is this, you know, you you've covered so many, I mean, so many kind of awful crime cases, I think, over the years. Is there what about this one like sticks out for you? Why do you why do you why is this one that really haunts you? I think the fact that the Tisenkrupp plant had a secure area. You know, if he would have been allowed inside the gates to park his rig, um, you know, we wouldn't be talking about this today. But their policy was not to allow um truck drivers onto their lot until it was time for them to unload. And, you know, at the time I spoke with officials who said, you know, I'm sorry, it's our policy, you know, that that we're, we there's no exceptions. But in the Detroit area, there's very few truck stops and very few safe places for drivers who deliver into these cities um, to to rest without having to, you know, without having to, you know, drive several miles outside of town and possibly lose their place, you know, in, in line. And and so I know that factored in is that he that why he arrived there and and at that time and stayed there was because he wanted to be first to be unloaded so that he could get back on his way home. So it's a tough choice. You know, these drivers are put in every day um, to, you know, to meet their schedule and and to deliver and unload and to find ensure that they have a safe place to park. It's an ongoing issue every day for drivers. And I think it, it really brings home when you see, you know, that there it feels like through throughout the the year that there's these, you know, there are always these pushes, whether it's, you know, statewide or talking at national level about, you know, the, this need for truckers to have access to parking. You know, this is not the same thing as someone going to the mall and having adequate parking spaces. This is this is really this is a this comes down to basic personal safety. I agree. You've been listening to Long Haul Crime Log from Freight Waves. You can find this episode as well as every other Freight Waves podcast by looking up Freightcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach us at crime at freightwaves.com if you have a tip or story to share. Tune in next time for more true crime stories from the dark side of freight.